listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. For the rest of us, if if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 1 as we continue our series, Sent. As you're turning there, welcome. My name is Gabe DeGarmo. If I haven't met you yet, I have the privilege of of being the lead pastor here at King's Community Church, and I would love to meet you before you leave this place today. In fact, uh, we have a luncheon for newcomers uh, that we would love for you to participate in to let you know more about who we are, what we do, what we believe as a church. Uh, That's a great next step for you to be able to understand what our vision, mission, and values are as a church. Uh, But for right now, we're continuing our series called Sent. The church was made for mission. And I hesitate to call this a sermon series because the desire is for it to be so much more than that. In fact, this series is an opportunity for us to, to look at the first two chapters of the book of Acts and explore what it means for us to, to see and be the church in this world that God has created. And there are going to be opportunities for us to learn from the scriptures. We're going to go through the first two chapters in moments like this. Uh, But we're also going to be the church out in the community uh, through some of the opportunities that we have in this series with, with our neighbors whom we want to love. Because we believe the gospel doesn't end with us, but rather we're conduits of the gospel to go into the world. Uh, let me give you an update on Sent. Uh, we started the sermon parts of the series last week uh, when, we, when we talked through Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. Uh, but then yesterday was our first opportunity to demonstrate what it looks like to be the church in the community together. And we did that yesterday uh, from, from about 8.30 a.m. to about 5 p.m. right here at Morningside Elementary School. Uh, over 20 adults and countless kids, they wouldn't stand still long enough for me to count, showed up to participate in, uh, in the event that happened here at Morningside yesterday. There was a fundraiser in this school uh, that, that really helps them uh, live into their mission, vision, values as a school. And they afforded us the opportunity to come alongside them. So yesterday, we had people here that were helping set up or tear down at the beginning and end of the day. There were families here helping run booths, run games. And it was a great experience overall. There were a lot of people here in this school. And we had the privilege of demonstrating to the school that that we are not only a new church in the community, but we want to be a church for the community. When we were setting up our booth in the morning, one of the administrators of the school actually came in and and said, hey, I I just want to tell you something. I'm glad you're here. And she went on to say, and I don't just mean I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad that your church is meeting in this school. It's a blessing to me to know that I'm in a place that's being prayed for regularly, even when I'm working. And at the end of the day, I approached Principal Frito, the, the, the principal of this school, and I asked her how she was doing, and she said, she said I'm a little bit tired, but I'm good. And, and of course she's tired. She took a Saturday, and from 8.30 a.m. to about 5 p.m., she worked for the good of others. And she said, but I, I do want to let you know that I sincerely don't think we could have pulled this off this year if it wasn't for your church's help. I don't think she was blowing smoke. I think she was telling the truth uh, because 
a lot of her teachers and, and, and other faculty members actually got to be present with the families that came here on campus yesterday. So we are beginning to exercise the muscles of what it means to be the church in the community. When we do this together as a church, that's like practice for doing it in our day-to-day lives. We're going to talk more a little bit later about the upcoming opportunities to continue practicing that as we study the book of Acts. Today we're looking at the second half of chapter 1. In Acts 1 verses 12 to 26 is where we'll be today. We're going to look at the idea that we were sent to pray. Several years ago, uh, I have this fond memory of my relationship with my son Deacon. Every day when I would come home from work, I'd be greeted at the door by my young son Deacon who would yell, My daddy! And I remember it vividly because he wasn't just screaming, Daddy. As soon as my key would hit the lock on our door, I would hear the squeal of a, of a one, two-year-old screaming, My Daddy. And as soon as I would walk into the house, he would plug the pacifier back into his mouth and throw his arms up into the air and yell through the pacifier, My Daddy, until I would reach down and pick him up and carry him to greet everyone else in the house. That was the routine. As a dad, it made me feel ecstatic. I loved it. And you can imagine, I knew that that season of life wasn't going to last forever. But but when Deacon was a little bit older, he he was suddenly struck by a car and killed. And one of the first memories I had in that season after he had died, was the way he would approach me, my daddy. And all of a sudden, the way that that he greeted me meant even more because my prayer life changed at his sudden death. For the first time as a Christian, I can remember reaching to the sky, pleading with the heavenly father, I need you to pick me up, my father. The urgency, the frequency with which I prayed changed because of suffering. Tragedy has a way of illuminating the words of the Bible differently. You begin to see the severity of the circumstances of this world that we live in that's broken when you've encountered pain and suffering Many of you are probably familiar with the words that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The early church saw that God's plan for salvation came through a bloody cross, and therefore they knew that by being followers of Christ, they were at war with evil and darkness. So they prayed. The way we talk to God in prayer says a lot about who we believe God is and what we believe God does in this world that we live. How do you approach God in prayer? Do you talk to God like he's a heavenly help desk there to provide customer service to you? 
Or do you talk to God in prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie with a triumphant king? Because those are two drastically different approaches to our Father in heaven. If I told you I spent a considerable amount of time working each week by praying, would you look to the person that you came with and say, see, I told you he doesn't do that much. Or, or would you hear that I, I spend a considerable amount of my time working in prayer and say, that makes perfect sense. The work of ministry requires prayer. And I'll be honest with you, church, there are weeks when I struggle to prioritize prayer because I need to be productive. But I assure you the prayerlessness of a Christian life is a fatal flaw. Without prayer, we'll prioritize all the wrong things. We might get a lot done, but it's hollow without God's guidance. It's not until we believe we're in the middle of a spiritual war where people are distant from God and dying that prayer becomes a desperate plea for direction in life. And the book of Acts shows us that. Acts shows us that prayer is not lazy, prayer is not passive, prayer is our lifeline to the living God. Prayer prepares us for mission. Last week we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 1 where the resurrected Jesus gives his followers his vision for the church and it's aligned with God's vision throughout all of human history to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the earth with God's glory. And then we're promised that the, the new forging of a group of believers called the church was going to participate in God's mission. How are they going to do that? When the Holy Spirit comes, they will receive power and they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And now we're about to see the disciples' next steps in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we're told, Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. In my humble opinion, that's, a, that's an interesting sentence. That's, a, that's sort of a weird way to just say their very next step is they went back to Jerusalem. Uh, but I assure you, Luke, who wrote Acts for us, uh, wasn't like a high schooler who only has six pages of content for a 10-page paper. He's not just trying to fill up the papyrus with ink. He's telling us this sentence this way for a reason, that they went back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem is near the Mount of Olives. It's about a Sabbath day journey. Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives are both very important places in the story that's unfolding. Why on earth would these people go back to Jerusalem. I mean, don't they remember that just a few weeks earlier, their leader was crucified on a cross in Jerusalem? That seems like risky business. They went to Jerusalem because the gloriously resurrected Jesus told them that that's where their mission was going to begin. Right? When my spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in the very first place he says is Jerusalem. So their very first action is to go to Jerusalem to be prepared to be on mission with God. 
Christian, I ask you, is your life a series of moments of preparing yourself to be ready to join God on his mission? Are the details of your life oriented around the idea that that you were invited into the greatest story ever told to participate in the mission of God? Busyness, prayerlessness, not prioritizing devotion to God's word, which will tell us how to be involved in his mission, will distract us from being prepared to join him on mission. And what do Jesus' followers do next after they get to Jerusalem and they end up in this, this upper room in a building where the group of them can be together In verse 13, when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Listen to this list. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Not the other Judas. They all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We got a list of 11 names. Who are those? the 11 of the 12 disciples that were faithful. And then there was, there was another crowd around them that was with them ready to pray too. Jesus' disciples led this group of what we'll learn is about 120 believers in prayer. Why is prayer their response to Jesus' instructions? We know why they go back to Jerusalem because that's where he said the mission was going to begin. But why is their first step to pray? They prayed because they're Christ followers, which means that they're going to follow Jesus' leading. And they remember just a few weeks earlier what their leader did before he went to war with Satan on the cross. Jesus prayed. Last week, we mentioned the fact that Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And what Luke is writing about This early group of Christians in Acts chapter 1 really mirrors the acts that Jesus was doing just before he went to the cross that Luke also recorded in his gospel account in Luke chapter 22. Let's go back to look at what Luke recounts Jesus doing before he was arrested, tried, and beaten beyond recognition and hung on a cross. In Luke chapter 22, he writes this about Jesus' actions. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. There's that place again. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthening him, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus went to this garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to pray before he went to the cross. Jesus undoubtedly knew that his mission was going to require pain and suffering and even death. Gethsemane means olive press. It's what they would use to to make olive oil. 
there would be these large barrels and a crank on the top, and they'd, they'd turn that crank until the olives would be crushed and the olive oil would flow out. That's so appropriate because Jesus knew that he was about to be crushed and his life would be pressed out of him for the glory of God and for sinners like you and me. Jesus pleaded with God the Father in that garden, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that the most courageous and selfless prayer you can imagine? Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, prayed for help to accomplish the mission. Who are we to think that we could ever accomplish the will of God for our lives apart from prayer. In my version, I use the Christian Standard Bible, it says, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. Uh, The Greek word that's used for anguish here is agonia, That's where we get our English word agony or to agonize. Agonia is the Greek word. But in Greek, the word has two significant meanings, and they both matter to us when we read this text. Agonia means to agonize or to struggle in pain. That's the obvious definition. But the other definition that's used in Greek is to fight for victory. Jesus is doing both in the garden. He is in agonia or anguish because God's mission is going to require him, a righteous man, to take on a criminal's cross and experience separation from his beloved father, the greatest pain that he could imagine. Jesus is praying in anguish to the point that he's sweating drops of blood out of his pores. But Jesus' prayer is also a part of his fight for victory against Satan and death. Like a warrior going into battle, he's being reminded of his marching orders, his mission, God the Father's will. Jesus is agonizing in prayer, but he is also fighting in prayer. Jesus' prayer is is the types of prayer that we should pray agonizing on behalf of people that we love, that they would experience life where there is death. We, church, should be fighting in prayer as we engage God's mission. John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, life is war. This is the assumption of the New Testament authors. There is not a warfare part of life and a non-warfare part of life. Life is war. Most people show their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in a peacetime, not wartime. He goes on to say, very few people think that we are in a war that is greater than World War II or any imaginable nuclear war. Few reckon that Satan is a much worse enemy than any earthly foe, or realize that the conflict is not restricted to any one global theater, but is in every town and city in the world. Who considers that the casualties of this war do not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but lose everything, even their own soul, and enter hell or everlasting torment? Jesus was acutely aware of this war 
and that led him to the mission of the cross. The New Testament church was acutely aware of this war, so they prayed to God to prepare them before they engaged in it. Do you believe we're in the midst of a spiritual war? Does your life reflect the idea that that we're usually at peacetime and everything's okay and people are mostly good? Or do you believe that people are dying and there are eternal consequences? I have a friend who's a pastor in Plano, Texas, and he told me a story about when he visited a good friend of his in inner city Chicago. And he spent about a week in this other pastor friend's home. At the end of the week, Uh, of of seeing a lot of ministry happen in some seedy places. Uh, My friend told his friend in Chicago, I want to commend you. I want to encourage you for the faith that you have. And his friend said, what do you mean? And he said, "You, you live in a rough part of town. You're raising your family here. That's gotta be hard. That's gotta take a toll on you spiritually. And he told my friend Jeff, he said, he said, Jeff, thank you, I appreciate that. But where I live, when I step across the threshold of my house into the world, the difference between light and darkness is obvious. But where you live, in the suburbs, where people seem mostly good on a day-to-day basis, I think it takes great faith to do ministry there. Because the difference between light and darkness is blurred by niceness and people thinking they're walking with God because they're they're kind and polite. We live in a world with that struggle. We live in a world where we believe the lie that we're in the midst of peacetime instead of wartime. And that affects the way that we pray. Christian, we should agonize in prayer, pleading for the lives of people that you long to see trust and follow Jesus as though it's a matter of eternal life or death. And we should also fight in prayer, begging God to push back the darkness through us, even if it's going to cost us something. Church, this is why we pray different ways on Sunday morning. This is why as we move through our liturgy, our order of service, sometimes we are raising our hands in celebration. Sometimes we are on our knees with our hands surrendered to God, pleading, forgive us and equip us. And other times we're standing with confidence, asking the Spirit to fill us as we go on mission. We practice each of these different ways to pray in order that as we go out into the other six days a week, we are ready to walk with God and be used on his mission. If you are not praying about how God would use you for his glory, you're not in the fight. The day after our son died, a pastor friend held me close and wept with me and said, Gabe, this is going to be incredibly hard. But rest assured, this is the closest to hell that you will ever have to be. That statement stuck with me. And over time, I realized more and more that day in and day out, we all walk past people who don't have the hope of the gospel And that even in my deepest pain, I at least have a glimmer of hope because of the resurrection of Christ. I know people that have a lot of creature comforts that don't have that eternal hope. 
Randy Alcorn wrote in his book, Heaven, the best life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they'll come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. We pray because we're in a war for the hearts and minds and ultimately the souls of people. Jesus knew that, so he fought in prayer. The early church follows his lead, and this is why we must be a praying people. As Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives, he implores his disciples to pray too. And he tells them why twice. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. The temptation that Jesus is warning them against is the temptation to defect. Like Judas, the betrayer, the disciple who had already left them and moments later would betray them in that very garden of Gethsemane. Now turn back to Acts chapter 1. And see that the very next thing Peter says... Peter, one of Jesus' faithful disciples, warns the rest of Jesus' followers about what happened to Judas. Peter says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst. His body burst open as an intestine spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field is called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it and let someone else take his position. Anyone who says the Bible is boring probably hasn't read it. Judas, the betrayer, is talked about in Acts chapter 1. Peter stands up and addresses this small crowd of believers in the room and reminds them of Judas. Judas walked with Jesus and the other 11 hand-picked disciples for about three years before Judas abandoned Jesus and went to the religious authorities who hated Jesus and worked with them to ensure that Jesus could be arrested. And he did this all for 30 pieces of silver. As the story goes, after realizing how heinous of an offense he had committed against God, Judas, the betrayer, used that dirty money to purchase a plot of land where he would kill himself. That's, what's, that's what Peter's telling them about. Peter says this happened to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy that came from David, one of the most notable figures in the Old Testament whom God had a special covenant with. David spoke about false companions and wicked men who posed as God's followers while being God's foes. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really illuminated God's mission in the Old Testament. And Peter is beginning to understand and explain God's plan of redemption throughout human history. And he's preaching that. He's proclaiming that to the other believers in that room. So in the second half of Acts chapter 1, Luke is explaining a fork in the road. There are two paths. The first path is the one of faithful Jesus praying and engaging the mission of God. The second path that Peter points out is that of Judas, the betrayer that leads to death and destruction. 
the path of Jesus, the path of Judas. The interesting thing is that both paths lead to death, but only one path leads to life, and that's through Christ. The path of life is found through Jesus, who before he went to the cross told the crowds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. He told the crowds, I am the resurrection, priming them for what he was going to do to conquer death. And he also told the crowds, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. See, Jesus didn't say that following him would prevent trials. He said if you follow him, you will be able to overcome trials because he overcame our biggest trial, even death. Some Christians will be called to martyrdom, to actually die for your faith in Jesus. Last week we talked about that word witness that we're called to be is the same word they used in Greek to define martyr. Some Christians will be called to that, but all Christians are called to die to ourselves daily. What does it mean for us? What does it sound like? What does it look like for us to die to ourselves daily? Well, it's not like Judas who literally killed himself, but rather it's to pray to God the Father and say, Father, not my will but yours be done. That's what the selfless prayer is. That's what the prayer of faith is. Our prayer life, the way we pray, will typically reveal which path we're on. It is okay to talk to God about everything going on in your life. He actually wants us to talk about everything going on in our lives. In fact, the scriptures tell us that that even when we wonder thoughts, before we could articulate them, he already understands. He wants us to be in relationship with him through prayer, through every prayer that we could offer him. It's okay to ask God for favor in life, too. It's okay to ask God for specific outcomes. Jesus did that. He prayed in the garden, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. He's saying, if there's another way that doesn't require a cross and separation from you, let it be. But the prayer culminates with not my will, but yours be done. Do your prayers sound more like asking God to bend his will to yours, or do you ask God to help you surrender your will to his? Surrendering to God's will takes tremendous faith, faith that the better road for you may not be the easier road. It takes faith to believe that God's way is better than your own, and God will honor your faith. Salvation comes through faith. Perseverance to go through trials comes through faith. Joining God in his mission also comes through faith. Jesus' followers pray and they do something else in the upper room. They prepare. In this last part of Acts chapter 1, we see, Therefore, among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, these followers of Jesus, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the disciples proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, which is a much better nickname than Barsabbas, Joseph, who was also known as Justice, and then there was Matthias. And then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. 
show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Having been witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, Peter wanted to prepare so that if Christ returned right away, they would be ready to set up the kingdom on earth. Here we also see the heart of God in equipping others and passing the baton of ministry. See, the church should never sit still. It should always be moving forward, preparing others to engage. This small group of believers has been given a huge mission, and they know they're going to need leadership. So they do what they need to do to get leaders in place. And often in biblical history, God would replace someone who proved unworthy with a more fruitful steward. And that's exactly what God is going to do for them here. The disciples nominated two apparently equally qualified men and prayed for the Lord to make it clear which one of these two guys he was going to choose to fill Judas's place. They acknowledge that, that they are not the same pay grade as God. God is going to have to show them which one is going to fit the bill. So they cast lots, which is a lot like shooting dice to see which one of these guys is going to fill the spot that, that Judas left. Casting lots was an acceptable way to make decisions before the Holy Spirit came as Jesus promised he would. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and we never hear of the disciples casting lots again because they have the Holy Spirit to lead them. But in the interim, this is how they figure out who's going to be on the team. And they install Matthias. Luke's gospel ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts begins with the disciples praying and preparing while they wait for the Spirit. Which tells us that prayer and the Holy Spirit's presence and help and guidance and power are tethered together. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees here. So it's important that we take a step back and remember all that's going on in this scenario. Prayer is important to these people because they are followers of Jesus. They've witnessed Jesus. They love Jesus. They're devoted to Jesus. They just saw Jesus surrender his life for sinners like themselves and then conquer sin and death through resurrection and offer new life to them. I submit to you, church, that prayer comes more naturally to people who remember the cross of Christ. Their devotion to Jesus is what led them to pray. Their knowledge of what Jesus was willing to do to save them led them to pray more. If you have trouble praying for yourself, my encouragement to you is to think more about the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have trouble praying for others in your life, my encouragement to you is to think more about the cross of Christ. If you have trouble praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done, my encouragement to you is to think more about the cross of Christ. When we forget the cross, we forget that we are in the midst of a spiritual war where people are dying physically and spiritually. The only way we will pray more is if we remember the cross of Christ. Earlier I mentioned that the way we pray reveals who we believe God is and what we believe God does in this world. The cross of Christ reminds us that our biggest need is God himself, and God provides to meet our biggest need on the cross. 
God will also provide to meet our every need for all of life and living through the Holy Spirit. For every need we have, God provides himself. Isn't that beautiful? For every need we have, salvation, perseverance, joining the mission, God provides himself to meet that need. When we remember the cross of Jesus Christ, it will cause us to pray frequently about all types of things all throughout the day. It will cause us to pray urgently like a father being begged by a child to be picked up and held in his arms. And it will cause us to pray missionally, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Can you imagine what it would look like if we prayed like the early church? Imagine if we became experts on what God has for us instead of what we don't have. I'll say that again. Imagine if we, church, became experts on what God has for us instead of what we don't have. We need to pray. We should also prepare as though we believe Jesus is coming back. We should prepare as though we believe Jesus' prayer, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So church, we will pray, and in the coming weeks, when we don't gather in this room on Sunday morning, we're not just doing Christian do-goodism with our neighbors. We are preparing to make our community a stronger reflection of God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I hope that you will join us. I hope that you're taking those, those sent cards with the calendars on them and praying for the opportunities that God has afforded us to be a blessing in the community. I pray that you'll register online to join us to do the work of ministry that he's provided for us. I hope that together we will be a praying church and a church that prepares to engage the mission of God because we are a sent people and the church was made for mission. If you haven't registered, you can go online. It will be one of the few times that I'm not a little bit disappointed in you if you even pull out your phone in church and, and sign up. But church, please join us praying that we would know how to engage the mission of God, praying for courage, pray that the spirit would be on us, but not just sitting while we pray, standing up and going as we are sent out into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the church that he was called, we, we were called to be. Next week, we will not be here. We'll be at the SJRC Texas. I've told you about them before. The SJRC Texas is a foster organization that works alongside the state. The outpost that they have here in New Braunfels is for girls who are in the foster program who are pregnant or who have already had a baby. And we're going to do like a spring cleaning for them. We're going to do landscaping for them. We're going to do organization for them. We're going to show them you matter because you are image bearers of God. And we want to be present where you are. I hope you'll join us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you provide to meet our every need. 
Father, you know us so well. You know our deepest need is salvation, and you provided yourself. While it would have been easy for you to say through your holy scriptures, God so loved his son so much that he gave him the world. Instead, you said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. God, thank you for salvation through your son. God, we also thank you that you've provided your Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us, to counsel us, and to empower us to join you on mission. God, convict our hearts to be a praying people in order that we can join your work to shine your light everywhere we go. In the powerful name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit we pray, amen.